Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. Because anterior cruciate ligament injuries are most common in sports, discussion about ACL tears often focuses on an athlete's immediate recovery and effort to return to the playing field. But a recent clinical report published in Pediatrics, the official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, reminds that ACL tears can bring long-term side effects. Athletes with ACL injuries are up to 10 times more likely to develop degenerative arthritis in the knee later in life. The Pediatrics Report also notes that the incidence of ACL injuries amongst athletes younger than 18 years has increased over the past two decades, and that girls suffer ACL injuries at a rate up to six times higher than boys in gender-comparable sports. But the good news is that these injuries may be largely preventable. The Pediatrics Report asserts that neuromuscular training to pre-program safer movement patterns before an injury occurs could significantly reduce the risk of ACL tears. Today we'll be talking about ACL injuries and what it takes to recover from them and what can be done to prevent them with physical therapist Julie Ebensteiner, who has first-hand experience with ACL injuries both as a PT and as a former soccer coach. Julie, before we talk about the recent study, let's just cover the basics in terms of the ACL. Give me a sense of how it functions, what its role is within the knee. Yeah, the ACL is, is an abbreviation for the anterior cruciate ligament, and the anterior, anterior cruciate ligament is one of four major ligament stabilizers within the knee, and it runs through the middle of the knee. It kind of crisscrosses with, with another ligament through the middle of the knee, and it provides stability to the knee so the shin bone isn't shifting forward in relation to the thigh bone, and then also prevents rotation of the shin bone in relation to the thigh bone as well. And so we hear about the ACL all the time in terms of especially athletic injuries. Is it because it's more prone to injury or it takes longer to heal when it's ruptured, or is it just a matter of the importance of the ACL in terms of its function? Well, I think it's both. I think it's a major stabilizer within the knee, but then along with that, just where it's placed anatomically within the body, it's not in a good place for healing on its own, or or the MCL and some of the other ligaments within the knee, they've got good blood supply and good healing properties, but for some reason, the ACL typically does not heal on its own. So then when we get ourselves into situations with cutting and unpredictable situations in sports where that knee ligament is more, there's more demanded of it, you know, we typically see more injuries, and then along with it, it's not healing. So usually, not always, but a lot of times, surgery tends to be the route we need to go for athletes to return to their sport. I want to talk about that treatment and recovery process in a second, but first, are there any activities that seem more at risk than others, especially when it comes to sports? You know, it seems obvious that somebody could injure their knees in a football accident, for example, but other sports, does there seem to be a trend there? Oh, certainly. Well, first of all, it's an injury that 70 to 80% of the time is non-contact, so a lot of people tend to used to think that people are plowing into to knees and it's the direct contact to a knee which is causing an ACL injury, which is sometimes what you will see in football, but even in the NFL, most of those ACL injuries in the past year were non-contact. So it's a sport where there's an unpredictable environment, so a lot of times, you know, an, an opponent, and then a deceleration type of sport where you're either landing jumps, you're changing direction, or, or doing both, where you typically see more of the injuries. So the straight line 
running, you know, more predictive sports, you don't see it as much. But definitely in the uh, deceleration, unpredictable team sports settings, you, you typically see them more often. And so that's why we would expect to see it more, for example, in women's soccer than in track and field. Absolutely. So if there's a tear to the ACL, let's talk about that treatment. You said that surgery is pretty common. Let's go along those lines. If someone tears their ACL, they need surgery. What does that typical treatment look like after surgery, and how long does that typically take? Well, if someone goes to, to injure their ACL, you know, first get the injury confirmed by an orthopedic surgeon. If the plan is to go down the route of surgery, typically the best plan is to get in to see a physical therapist right away to start with preoperative physical therapy treatment to get the joint ready and the patient ready for both the surgery and to get them ready for six to nine months of rehab that's going to accompany it. So usually it's two to three weeks a lot of times uh, from the injury up until the time they have surgery. Sometimes it certainly can be longer. And certainly there are people that can try the conservative route with them and they hope in response to not having an ACL just through physical therapy focusing on neuromuscular control and strengthening. A lot of times with these athletes that want to get back to team sports, the surgical route is the route you're going to have to go. So after the surgery, it's a a six to nine month recovery through physical therapy and then coordinating that hopefully with a strength and conditioning or sports performance specialist and then hopefully the team coach along with that. So it's a major rehab for sure. Absolutely. Tell me more about that preoperative physical therapy. So I think to some people that would seem almost like, well, if I I tore my ACL and I need surgery, how can I be doing physical therapy before I even get in for surgery? So what what would that entail and and what are you preparing them for exactly? Yeah, certainly some people are like, well, I already tore my ACL and I'm going to go into surgery. Why do I want to do anything where I'm just going to get my strength's going to wiped out again? But, you know, there's research behind it saying you do the prehab prior to ACL reconstructive surgery the recovery time on the back end is quite a bit less. And in those prehab sessions, it's so important on a number of fronts. First of all, the physical part, increasing strength again. I always tell a patient that the stronger you can go into surgery, the better and the easier it's going to be on the other side of surgery. So getting muscles to fire again, and not just the quad muscle, the core stabilization, hip stabilization, and the whole kinetic chain trying to work again instead of just taking two to three or four weeks off just waiting for surgery to happen and all those muscles are shutting off and kind of going to sleep. So part of it's a strengthening piece. The other part is range of motion, especially getting full extension, trying to get flexion as much as you can, the knee bending as much as you can, symmetrical to the other side, and then decreasing swelling. If we can get the strength, the range of motion, and the swelling down prior to surgery, then like I said, uh, that typically decreases the length of rehab on the other side of things. And then along with that, the psychological part of the rehab is huge. And the more I can get on the same page with the patient, there's a good rapport between the two of us, and they can start to understand, okay, well, this is how things are going to go after surgery. Then it makes the post-surgery rehab a lot less scary to them, and they're a little more familiar with it, and hopefully it decreases some of the fear. And fear is such a huge thing with the rehab and just being able to trust that knee again. So just building the, the rapport between patient and physical therapist prior to the surgery ever happening is such a powerful tool. So following surgery, how quickly might they begin their physical therapy routine? Some will start that afternoon if they're having they surgery in the morning, but typically I see patients two to three days after their surgery just to get started on foundational stuff with PT. Typically, I don't like to see people wait more than a week or even, you know, some people are waiting until their first follow-up with their surgeon, which sometimes can be 10 to 14 days, and in my opinion, that's way too long. 
you've, you've given the, the, the knee way too much off time, so it just takes longer to get everything back. And so those initial goals are the same as they would be, I guess, in the prehab, the range of motion, the awakening the muscles again to avoid atrophy, things of that nature. Is that right? Yep. Certainly the, the big things are pain control, first of all, and then decreasing swelling and inflammation and that sort of thing at the joint, and then getting quad firing again, and then just working on just functional stuff and being able to, to walk again if that's indicated with the surgery. You know, if they had a meniscus, you wouldn't necessarily probably be walking on it right away, but if it's just a straight ACL reconstruction, getting them weight-bearing, getting used to being able to get around their house and that sort of thing. I'm sure it's different from patient to patient, but you mentioned that fear factor of thrusting that knee again, depending on it again, in a recovery post-ACL tear, post-surgery. Do there tend to be these pretty common periods where uh, plateaus almost, where an athlete faces that, that need to sort of go to the next level in terms of trusting that I can do this exercise or I can put this much weight on it? Give me some of those that sometimes pop up where maybe that it takes a little while to get over the hump and then they finally sort of get to that next level in their recovery. Yeah, you know what, it's really dependent on the person. Some people are going to be really scared right off the bat, and that's just part of more of their personality. So you just know that sometimes you just have to, how you word things is going to have to be a little bit different, or how you go about things is going to have to be a little bit different. But definitely the, the fear thing plays a part in almost everyone's rehab. Part of it, too, is it's a non-contact injury. So they're scared, like, well, I didn't get hit this injury. You know, it was just I just planted funny, or I just landed funny. It didn't seem like anything. All of a sudden, I had this major knee injury. You know, so they have to fear that it's going to happen again. Some of the tricks I use, first of all, the, the prehab thing is, is very important. But the next thing is we're talking about pain because pain is usually the big fear, the, the big fear that a lot of patients have immediately afterwards. And I always have a conversation with my patients about good pain versus bad pain because a lot of times they think if, if they have, they're having pain, they're hurting the surgery or they're doing something, you know, bad to what just got reconstructed. So just having a conversation about, you know, sometimes some of the pain is going to be good, and that actually means muscles are working again. That means, you know, that you're, you're getting some range of motion out. It should be excruciating. So then a lot of times I put the patient in control of range of motion, and, you know, if you're going to move the leg, I'm not going to force stuff. And then they get control of stuff, and that starts to reduce a lot of fear. And with early weight-bearing and stuff, a lot of times they look at me like, you're crazy. I'm going to walk on this leg right now, and what I'll do just initially is I'll put two bathroom scales under each leg, and say, okay, well, let's look at them right now, and they'll notice they're putting 80% of their weight off of their surgical leg, and I'll, I'll get them, okay, let's get those bathroom scales equal. Okay, how do you feel about it? And they're like, oh, you know, this isn't too bad now. So just little things like that, just so they start to realize they can start to trust that leg a little bit more. And then throughout the rehab process, it's a lot of just giving them bits at a time. And I think if you throw anything at any athlete and it's a big junk, you know, they're going to get nervous about it. But if you're just kind of doing bits at a time and you're showing them progress they're making with stuff and then sometimes adding a little bit of, of distraction into things. So the other day I was working with a soccer player, a college soccer player. She's been fearful on some change of direction stuff. We incorporated the ball more into stuff and just simplified the activity a little bit more so she didn't really have to process a whole lot. Well, all of a sudden you can just tell that she's moving better and she's feeling a lot more confident on that knee. So there's definitely some tricks you can use. It's just you need to tailor it to the patient, though. So back to that pediatric journal study, there is an increase in athletes 18 and younger who are suffering ACL injuries over the past two decades. Do we have any possible explanations for that increase could be? Oh, geez. You know, I don't think anything's been pinned down in research as to why it's happening yet, but certainly you need to look at there's a number of factors. The things that pop into my head on a daily basis, uh, the sports specialization piece, 
And I always give this analogy when I talk to different teams and stuff about injury prevention. They tell them, you know, if you're driving your car to work and you're taking the same route every day and you're making the same turns and you're making the same stops, you know, the tires are going to wear a certain way, the brakes are going to wear a certain way, the transmission's going to wear a certain way. Well, we should take our car in for the, the annual maintenance so, lot, so we aren't so all of a sudden the tires are flying off or the brakes aren't going out. But we're not doing that with our athletes. We, we just keep driving it more, and we keep driving it faster. And then we it, sometimes it baffles me why people are wondering why so, much, so many of these injuries are happening. A lot of times we're not doing anything. We're doing the maintenance piece. On the female side, I think strength and conditioning and just general developing physical competence is lost because we're all about how much more team skill training can I do? How much more time on the ball can I do with backwards? Can I do extra technical training and get better at shooting, getting better at passing, getting better at touches on the ball, but then we miss the whole physical competence part of it. So I think that's one of it, and that sports specialization is happening earlier and earlier and earlier. Kids lack a free play. Kids don't tend to know how to interact and adapt with their environments just through their own experimenting. So I just think we're losing just physical competence on just how to generally move and interact with our environment. More kids are playing sports and they're playing at younger ages. So just surely there's just more exposure to the after to the uh, injury for athletes. I think the sedentary lifestyle and the fact that our kids are, tend to be overscheduled, stressed, I think fatigue is certainly playing a role with it, lack of sleep and just built-up fatigue. And then the last piece, I would love to see this getting researched more, but, you know, the nutrition piece. Are we just not as well built as we used to be because of what we're eating is so processed and we're on the run all the time that nutrition is generally just not good? Definitely a lot of things. I think the biggest piece, though, is sports specialization and the whole analogy of we're just running car down and we're not doing anything to keep it in track. Sure. So there are a lot of questions there. There might be a little bit more certainty in this next part. So are there physiological reasons why youth female athletes seem to be more prone to ACL injuries than males? Well, there's a lot of theories out there for sure from anatomical differences with hip angles and joint laxity and the role of hormones and that sort of thing. Those are things we generally can't control anyway. I think one of the big things is, and especially because you tend to see ACL injuries in females peaking right around the age of 16, so right after puberty. And, again, the environment part, I think, plays a huge role. Males are typically getting some sort of strength training a lot of times at some level. At the very least, when they're going through puberty, they're getting a huge increase in muscle strength relative to just to their body mass where females going through puberty are getting an increase of body mass, but not necessarily muscle strength, where the guys are getting more muscle strength. So as female athletes go through puberty, typically the sport is becoming more competitive, but now you have something with more mass and more inertia with less strength to be able to control it, and I think that's a recipe for disaster. Where guys are going through puberty and is getting faster and more competitive, but then they also are have the muscle strength to be able to control the increase in mass that they have as well. So there's definitely differences as to females and males why they're having the injuries. Some of it is stuff biological that we can't control, but I, I do think you know that strength sending piece I think is, is huge, and, and not just pure strength, but being able to control how their body is moving. So I might be able to predict part of your answer to this next question. We talked earlier about prehab in terms of really preoperative physical therapy, but what about prehab even before that, basically preventative measures? So 
if someone is a youth athlete or a parent of a youth athlete, especially a female who maybe is approaching that age of puberty where the, the increase might be higher and they're, they're in one of these change of direction sports like a soccer or gymnastics, something like that, what are the best tips for someone like that to try and avoid those injuries? Is it strength training? Is it diversifying their physical activity? Yeah, well, I think the easiest one, the simplest one, is using a good uh, neuromuscular warm-up, neuromuscular-based warm-up. And I'll get back to that in a minute. But basically taking the, the first 10 to 15 minutes of any practice or any training session and just preparing the body to move better. So I think that's the easiest one. The other ones are, again, you know, the strength training piece. Part of a team sport, there should be some sort of focus on just improving general physical competence and general strength. And then, you know, certainly I think parents can do a lot of help fighting back against the push for sports specialization so darn early. You know, these kids should not have to be picking just a single sport, you know, before the age of 14 in my opinion, but you're seeing 10- and 11-year-olds that are only playing soccer or only playing basketball or only playing, you know, whatever, and they just get stuck in those ruts. I would love to see kids get more involved with gymnastics early on, not necessarily that they need to become an Olympic-level gymnast by any means, but gymnastics is just such a good way for kids to learn how to interact with their body and just learn body awareness and how to move in space, and I think that's lost too often with with kids. But the neuromuscular-based warm-ups, there's really good research behind it saying that it will reduce, it will help reduce injuries, especially in female athletes, males too. Sometimes we miss that, but in female athletes, by up to 80, 88% in some of these studies, if they're if they're being done, but a lot of coaches using them for whatever reason. So what would that entail? What's got to be the base level requirements for something like that? So for a neuromuscular control basically means control of the body, the training the body, good coordination and control. So it's a 10 minute. Usually a 10 to 15 minute warm up you would use that would be very similar to, and it does, and just help with general athleticism. The big components of it would be training proper stabilization at the knee, especially at the lower body, um, you know, uh, developing an athlete's ability to control their center of mass, and then proper deceleration. So the big things you would see within these programs are agility training, some balance training, and certainly plyometrics. But those are just simple exercises that can be done at the very beginning of practice, not only is going to get your athletes focused for practice, but they're going to get be physically prepared to move better, too. Beyond that, when it comes to strengthening, which, you know, doesn't necessarily have to include weights but could, are there certain muscle groups that are especially important for ACLs? I mean, is it strengthening the quad? It doesn't have to do with any flexibility or just about, as you said, just sort of diversifying your fitness as a whole through cross-training. Well, I think that the easiest answer is just that you just want to be well-rounded. Now, again, with most kids, again, back to the car analogy, they have these similar compensations over and over and over. And typically in female athletes, what you're starting to see is, especially soccer players, they really are not lacking quad development by any means. With the amount of sprinting and the amount of kicking, the, the quad is definitely strong. Typically with the strength piece, especially in female athletes, certainly in males too, hip strength, glutes. Some of the smaller muscles that are acting on the hip are huge, and then hamstrings. If you look in a mirror, training muscles that you basically can't see in the mirror, the back side of your body, because we're so dominant on the front side of our body. And then the other piece is core stabilization. So really training our body to better be able to control, especially in an unpredictable situation, our center of mass. So if we can control the, the section from our shoulders down to our knees a little bit better, 
are a lot better. And I think we would see a definite decrease in the injuries. But the glutes and the hamstrings are huge as far as lower extremity strengthening. You mentioned earlier working with a cleated soccer player, and that would certainly be part of that at-risk group in this case. From your experience over the years working with athletes like these, have you seen the treatment change, the approach, the rehab change? How much have things evolved, say, in the last 10 years? Yeah, well, I think we're generally looking more at the hips as far as both on the prevention side and on the rehab side. And I think that especially through some of the work that Chris Powers is, is a big contributor to the work on hip strengthening and his role on the knee, and he's out of the University of Southern California, that that's been huge in the last few years. And then really training more functional movements. You know, my rehab, I, mean, I really don't even do leg press. You know, a lot of the stuff I'm doing, feet are on the ground. We're, we're working on, on training patients to be able to interact with the ground right from day one. There's not a lot of isolated strengthening, and it's a lot about teaching the body to work together as one, again, through movements, not necessarily muscle action. That's probably the biggest thing, and then along with that, it's just it's more, I don't want to say aggressive, but it's a lot more neural-based and more of getting the body to realize I can start to walk again normally, and it's okay to put weight on that leg, you know, provided there's not other injuries or surgeries involved, just getting the body to, to learn what is normal again instead of so much time off, non-weight-bearing, kind of babying things. We certainly do need to be smart in how we progress things, and I always tell my patients that, you know, we will be assertive with how we go through things, but we will not be reckless. And Bill Knowles is a is an athletic trainer uh, who works with the Philadelphia Union, um, and he, he's a big proponent on, you train around the injury. You don't make the injury the center of everything, you train around it. When the athlete, it is time to get back to the sport, it's not such a big jump from the rehab right back into sport, and you've, you've bridged the gap a little bit more, and uh, I'm a big believer in that philosophy as well. So you also have experience from being a coach yourself. From that perspective, what's your experience with this injury and, and what other changes do you think need to be made to be more preventative in terms of uh, ACL injury? Yeah, and I actually was a coach before I was ever a physical therapist. But I was coaching collegiately and then ended up coaching more elite-level clubs. And when I started you know, coaching more elite-level clubs, the importance of the neuromuscular program was one of the first things I did, not necessarily because I knew it was such an awesome, often effective thing to reduce these ACL injuries, but I just wanted to make sure my training environment was properly set from the beginning of the training session. And doing that, that neuromuscular control program for the first 10 minutes, it got my kids mentally tuned in, and then I was able to take advantage of 10 to 15 these hidden minutes we had during a training session to work on physical competence. And that played a huge role with keeping athletes healthy and then with also the success of the team. It's been shown in research the coach is the barrier to these programs being implemented. There was just a paper out on coaches are aware of of the benefits of the neuromuscular control-based warm-ups, but for some reason they're still not implementing them. And I think that's the next piece of research that's coming, that's going to take place is, well, why aren't they? I think part of it is coaches either don't know about it, they don't believe in it, or they think it's going to take so much time that it's just a pain to do. So I would like to see in coaching education forums, and and I'm most familiar on the soccer side of things where we have licensing, but I would like to see U.S. soccer, the National Soccer Coaches Association of America, the the state associations for soccer, and certainly I'm sure there's similar associations 
and organizations in other sports throughout, you know, all the other states make more of a push that when they're licensing coaches and when they're training coaches to be coaches, more time needs to be dedicated to these injury prevention programs. Germany just made a huge push in soccer of making this mandatory throughout their whole coaches association. And New Zealand made the FIFA 11 Plus, which is a neuromuscular controlled face warm-up, which, you know, you can Google search and find that. Takes 10 to 15 minutes. New Zealand made it mandatory for every single soccer organization in their country. And they projected out that for every dollar they spend training coaches on this stuff, they're going to save $8 in injury costs over the long run. So that's a huge thing, I think, on the, on the coaches' side of things. We need to somehow get over the hump of why coaches aren't doing this. It definitely works and just aren't getting it done yet. So just in terms of parting themes, if there's a youth athlete listening or, or their parents, somebody who wants to avoid this injury in the first place, what's your parting advice? Oh, geez. It's their body. It's their knee. And I always tell this to my patients after their final visit with me, but, you know, stick up for yourself. It's your body. It's your knee. And there's programs out there that work. Parents need to be a heck of a lot more savvy might be the term, but they need to be a little bit more demanding with how they're spending their dollars for these youth sports programs because too often I think parents feel like they're a passive player in their child's sport experience, and I think a lot of times the athletes feel that way too. There's a lot of money being made off of youth sports, and there's a lot of specialization going on because of that. And I think the more that parents and athletes and certainly coaches can become educated that this ACL injury is definitely something that can be prevented, and there's really good research behind it. We need to get these programs in place. Parents need to be asking, why aren't these programs happening? Or why are we not partnered with a physical therapy practice to have the physical therapist come in and educate everybody about these programs, coaches included, certainly coaches, because that's typically the person who is the barrier to these neuromuscular control programs being implemented. So I think they need to be more adamant about Let's get this stuff in place. My kid's going to play soccer or whatever sport for a very small chunk of their whole life, but they're going to need their knee, their body, for 80, 90 years. And I think too often people don't stick up for it. I've seen in the last few years, you know, I've had five, six players off of the same team being injured with the same injury, yet things aren't changing with some of the teams. You know, they just chalk it up to bad luck where there's either an education piece that's there or someone's being really stubborn. And like I said, that's where, the, where parents really need to start sticking up for themselves. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com slash radio.